Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25, man, it's such, a, it's such an honor to be able to disperse from here every week, go out into the world, try to live as a witness for Christ, and then to come back here. Like that rhythm in our life is so important to come back here weekly together to celebrate what the Lord is doing, to celebrate salvation, to celebrate baptism, to celebrate his word, to worship him, that weekly rhythm. We need that, don't we? And it's so important. I'm, I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're here today to celebrate and to enjoy the presence of God together. It's so important and special. So thank you for being here this morning. Genesis 25, we're continuing our series, A Family for the World, looking at God's special chosen family throughout the book of Genesis. And so uh, we're going to dive in in just a second, but let me pray for us and ask the Lord uh, to bless his word as we dive in today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your grace. And Lord, I'm grateful that we got to celebrate with Terry today your saving power. And Lord, I pray that we each today would be so grateful for what you've already done in our hearts. If we know you, if we truly have repented of our sins and given our lives to you, Lord, would we, would we bask, would we stand in awe of your grace today as we look at your word, as we look at this special family that you called, as you call each of us now to become a part of this same spiritual family. So Lord, give us great grace now through your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand what these words mean and what this story about these two brothers is really about. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So if you have a sibling or siblings, uh, you know a little bit about sibling rivalry. Um, <clears throat> me and my brother, we know all about it. Uh, I have a younger brother who's about three and a half years younger than me. And growing up, we, would, we were so competitive. Just everything we did, we were always competing and wanting to outdo one another. And even to this day, you should see us on the golf course. Like, we don't get to play very often, but when we do uh, get to play, we want to beat each other. Like, that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. If you have a sibling, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's just kind of this natural, inerrant, inherent um, desire to outdo your siblings. Well, today we are going to begin a story within this larger story of Genesis of one of the greatest and perhaps the most famous sibling rivalries of all time. And this story begins in chapter 25, uh, verse 19 is where we're going to begin. Now, this is a rather long story, and it kind of is divided up into parts throughout the next several chapters of Genesis. So I want us to go ahead and just dive into the story. I want us to walk through some of this in chapter 25 and chapter 27 and then we'll make some points at the end today. So let's, let's just dive right into this narrative as we continue looking at this great family that started with Abraham and then Isaac. And now here we go. What about after Isaac? Genesis 25, verses nine, or verse 19, beginning there. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, 
because she was barren. So we'll stop right there. So I want to kind of stop along the way and explain some things. You see, Isaac, we looked at the story last week of Abraham and his son Isaac and the sacrifice and how Jesus uh, or how God uh, prepared this substitute, the ram, uh, in the thicket, right? And that symbolized, of course, pointed us to salvation in Jesus. We talked about that last week. Well, Isaac, that young boy, he's, he's grown now, and so he has a wife named Rebecca. But we see another hurdle to the continuation of this great promise we've been looking at that God gave Abraham to bless his offspring to be a blessing to the whole world. You see, Isaac, just as his mom was barren, so now Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is unable to have children again as well. And it's another seemingly impossibility. But Isaac prays. He asks God to do what only God can do. So look at the rest of verse 21. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So just as his own birth was a miracle, so would the birth of his offspring be. And what does this show us? This shows us clearly that God is in control of this family line. He is the one who's going to give life. He is the one who's going to take credit for this family becoming a blessing to the world, for this family even existing. God is the one continuing the promise. And that's got to keep this family very humble. It has to keep them very dependent on his power, his provision. Their faith is tested over and over as they see that God is the one providing, not themselves. Verse 22. The children struggled, and that's, yes, that is plural. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca is pregnant with twins. They probably expected one child, but there's obviously more than one, as evidenced by the little fight, the sibling rivalry already going on in the womb. And so, leaving no room for confusion, God proactively designates which of these twin boys will inherit the blessing of Abraham, which will carry the spiritual title of firstborn. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So why the names? Well, the name Esau means Harry, that's what that word means. And that's probably not the nickname you want to give your newborn, right? I mean, this is kind of one of those situations where you can imagine Isaac and Rebecca's friends coming over to see the new baby and they see Jacob and they're like, oh, he's so cute. And then they look at Esau and they're like, oh, oh, he is something. He is something, right? <laughs> Jacob, Jacob means he grasps the heel, right? He's holding on 
to his brother's hill, even as he's coming out of the womb, what is he trying to do? Let me in front of you, right? He's trying to pull himself up around his older brother, the first to, to come out, right? So that's also an idiom in Hebrew that means he deceives. So hang on to that. So Jacob, he grasps his heel, or you could say he deceives. But you can only imagine, right? You can only imagine the mixed emotions at this birth. Why would there be mixed emotions here? Because, I mean, think about it. Isaac and Rebecca, they're so happy, all right? I mean, they're so happy to have these children. They're so happy to, to be first-time parents, and they have two boys. Man, what could bring you more joy, right? But at the same time, you know they're aware of the words that God spoke to Rebecca. There's going to be division here. There's going to be sibling rivalry. There's going to be two nations here battling against one another. And so Isaac and Rebecca, even as they hold their twins with so much joy in their heart, they are probably also experiencing this awkward feeling, to be honest, of emotion and wondering all the questions as to when and how and why these brothers would be divided one day. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, what that means is these, these brothers were very different from the beginning. And that proves true as they grow up and they, they pursue different occupations, right? So Esau is an outdoorsman. He's the kind of guy that likes to hunt and fish, and he apparently does that probably for a living, a farmer as well, perhaps. He's kind of wild and free, you know? Like, don't mess with Esau. Just let him do what he wants. Nobody tell Esau what to do. He's going to do his own thing, right? He'll come in later at the end of the day after a long day's work. Jacob, on the other hand, is more a little more civilized. He's a little more... Uh, reserved, right? He works indoors, right? He's got his cubicle set up in the tent somewhere, right? So he's just kind of an indoor guy. Verse 28, though, look at this. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So there's some serious favoritism going on here. And as we'll see more of this throughout the story, but perhaps Esau was the embodiment of everything Isaac ever wanted. Maybe Isaac saw something in Esau that he wished he saw in himself, perhaps. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Isaac favored Esau, whereas in some way the same was true with Rebekah towards Jacob. She favored Jacob. So, you know, we always say we don't play favorites with our kids, right? But you also know that some days, some of them are a little better than others, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love my kids all the same, just for the record. All right, verse 29. <laughs> Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So the word Edom means red. So Esau here, he's at a very weak moment. He's tired. He's hungry. He's only focused on satisfying his appetite. He's not thinking straight. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. 
You see, it's very possible that Jacob had been waiting for just the right moment to entice his brother to forfeit his birthright. But think about how outlandish this request really is. The firstborn son was so special in ancient culture because the firstborn son would become the head of the family. He would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So he would have all the social and financial and economic control and decision-making power in the family. So this birthright is nothing to take lightly. It is a very serious, with, serious issue with really legal implications. It's absurd for Jacob to even propose this in the moment. But it may also show how bad Jacob really wanted that grasping at the heel of Esau, still as an adult. Verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? You see, Esau doesn't, he either doesn't realize Jacob is being serious, or more likely, Esau just doesn't care too much about his birthright, or at least not as much as satisfying his appetite in the moment. So he kind of makes a joke, right? That's really what that is. What do I need an inheritance for if I'm going to die right now of starvation? Right? That's what Esau's saying to his brother. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. Jacob's serious. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Jacob was serious. As absurd as this request was, it was far more absurd for Esau to give in and to give up becoming the head of his family as he was essentially called to do in the ancient culture. It was his responsibility and he gave it all up. So that's kind of the first scene in this story. Now I want us to fast forward to chapter 27. So two big scenes here. That's the first one that sets the stage for what we're about to see in the next major part of this story in chapter 27. So chapter 27, verse 1, you can follow along on the screens. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. I guess Isaac doesn't know about Jacob's deal with Esau, right? Though he should remember the words of God to his wife about the younger sibling receiving the blessing. But Isaac loves Esau. Esau is his favorite. Isaac wants to bless Esau. Either way, he wants to bless his favorite son and enjoy his food and his company before he dies. Verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. 
Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So it turns out, Rebecca is just as deceitful as her favorite son. She devises this plan so that her favorite child can get the birthright. She wants him to have it. She wants him to have all the blessings that come along with that. So Rebekah comes up with this deceitful scheme. Verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Remember, Isaac is basically blind. says he can't see. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. Wow. Man, that would be a great costume to wear to trunk or treat. Dress up as Jacob, dressed up as Esau, right? <laughs> Can somebody please do that? <laughs> Man, how hairy was Esau, right? Goat skins on his neck? Ugh, all right. So Jacob, <laughs> Jacob and his mom... They are ready. They're ready to pull this trick off. They're ready to trick his dad. And so he goes in to where Isaac is. And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize some of the story here. Here's what happens. Jacob goes in, right, to where Isaac, to see Isaac, his dad. And remember, Isaac can't see. He's old. But still, he's suspicious at first. But eventually, eventually he believes it's Esau, his firstborn son. So he, he falls for the trick. And what he does, Isaac formally gives Jacob what he thought was Esau's birthright. And this is a formality here, by the way. But, but then Esau comes in. So, so Jacob leaves. Jacob leaves. He's gotten the official birthright. It's his. But then Esau comes in after Jacob leaves, and he finds out he has been deceived. And the birthright has been stolen from him. So he becomes furious. And he plots to kill his brother. Now let's skip down to verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. See, Rebekah catches wind of this. So she sends Jacob far away to live with relatives in another land. But there you have it. A family. God's chosen family, by the way. A family torn apart. A family completely wrecked and ruined because of sinful deception and unholy appetites. This story is far from over. And we'll pick back up with it next time. But for now... What can we learn from this family and what just unfolded? You know, through all of these 
four family members, they all had issues with their own sinful desires. But I think if we look at the brothers particularly, I think we can see something that really applies to our own hearts. I think the first thing we see from this great story relates more so to Esau. But here's what we see for us. We must not undervalue our spiritual birthright. We must not undervalue, like Esau did, our spiritual birthright. You see, the text tells us that Esau despised his birthright, which means he disregarded it as unimportant. At least not in the moment. It was not what really mattered to him in that moment. And again, I know I keep saying it, but we cannot underemphasize the importance of this birthright in the ancient world. It meant everything to the family. It should have meant everything to Esau. So for Esau to just flippantly give it away for a bowl of soup, that's what he did. It is absurd. Hebrews 12 verse 16 calls Esau unholy. That's the word it uses to describe Esau, unholy. You see, this was truly sinful of him to sell something so important, not just to himself. He's being very selfish here. This is important to the whole family. The whole family is anticipating Esau to take over when Isaac dies, but he puts his appetite before his family. He puts his appetite and his own sinful desire before the responsibilities as a firstborn son. But let's not be too quick to judge. Because here's the thing. As children of God, as brothers and sisters in the family of God, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we also have a very important birthright. We've been we have been adopted into the family of God. We do the same thing Esau does in regards to our salvation, our spiritual birthright. We despise it. And what you're saying, what are you talking about? I don't despise my salvation. I'm thankful for it. But we do. But we do. Because every time we deliberately choose to sin instead of obey God's word, we are basically saying the same thing as Esau, metaphorically. Give me some of that stew. Give me some of that stew. I don't care right now about the blessings of Christ. I don't care right now about all the truth that God has declared over me as his child, as destined for eternity and heaven to live with him forever, to inherit all the blessings of a firstborn child. I don't care about all of those blessings right now. Give me some of that stew. Mm, it looks good. That's essentially what we're saying. This other thing in life looks more satisfying to me than the blessings of Christ. That is exactly what happens when we begin to devalue our salvation. When all of a sudden in our life, we see this drift where our salvation in Christ is starting to slowly mean less and less to us. And other things of this world are starting to shine and sparkle a little brighter in our minds. 
When we devalue our salvation in Christ, these other things, they start to look attractive. And in our weakest moments, that is when the temptation is strong and that is when we give in and very poor sinful choices are made. Notice Esau comes to Jacob. He's exhausted. He's tired. He's hungry. And he is probably angry. It's those same moments of our lives when we are most vulnerable to temptation. It's when we are experiencing those same emotions in those weaker moments of life that temptation knocks on the door and we think, we tell ourselves in the moment, there is probably something better for me if I open this door. And if we are not on guard, if we are not on guard against that, then we will do what we never thought we could do. We will do things that will ruin our marriages. We will do things that will ruin our relationships with our children. We will do things that will ruin our friendships. We have to realize what is at stake in the moments of temptation. For Esau to give up all that wonderful blessing for just a fleeting momentary pleasure. We read that and we think, man, Esau, what in the world are you thinking? A bowl of soup? Really? As theologian Alan Ross points out, he became, Esau became like the very animals he tried to bait and kill. He was just desperate to fill his appetite instead of thinking of the long-term consequences. But that's what we do every time, every single time. We give in to some kind of temptation and we do something that we know is wrong. We know it is not according to God's will or his design for our lives. We know that it is disrespectful and a betrayal of others and the relationships we have with others. Yet, the stew in the moment looks better. We despise our salvation, the birthright we have as God's children, the inheritance we have. We are lessening the value of that in our minds as we choose sin instead of holiness or obedience. How do you resist that? How, how do we resist the temptation to sin in those weaker moments? How do we value appropriately our salvation? Well, the answer is to keep coming back to it in our minds and our hearts. To keep coming back to the great grace we have been given to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. If we do not focus our hearts, if we do not focus our hearts and minds on the Word of God in prayer with Him and through His Word frequently and specifically, over time, we do lose sight of what's really important. That's how it happens, by the way. You do not wake up one moment, one morning, and decide, I think I'm going to ruin my life today. I think I'm going to do something that is so terrible that it's just going to ruin my life. 
None of us wake up and thinks that. What happens is morning after morning after morning after morning, time as time goes on, we begin to drift. Just like a a raft out in the ocean. There's a reason the lifeguards at the beach keep blowing the whistle if you're on an inner tube floating out a little bit. It's because they need you to come back. You will drift and the current will take you. The longer we go in our lives without truly seeking the Lord and studying the Word of God, the communication of our Creator to us to teach us how to live and to shape our hearts into what they're supposed to be, the longer we forsake that, the more we neglect that, a drift begins to occur. And let me be clear, we do not believe and you do not lose your salvation, but you can absolutely falter in your faith. You can absolutely drift to a point where temptation can have a stronghold in your life. We've got to keep coming back. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to get into the word of God. We have to seek his face in prayer and cry out to him constantly. We are not strong enough to not do that. We can't afford to not do that. We have to guard against that drift. We have to cherish our salvation. That's what Esau was missing. He didn't care enough about his birthright. But what about Jacob? I think maybe we could say Esau did not care enough about his birthright. Maybe Jacob cared too much. Number two, the second thing we see from this story is we must not overvalue the things of this world. Esau undervalued his birthright. Jacob, on the other hand, overvalued the birthright and all the treasure that comes with it. Now remember, at the birth of these twins, Jacob came out of the womb after Esau holding onto his heel. And that symbolizes how their relationship would play out. There had to be some sense of jealousy, right? That Jacob had towards Esau as they grew up, as he saw his dad, Isaac, loving Esau more. I mean, what a terrible thing for a son to see. Because a son desires the affection of his father, and his father is not giving it as much to Jacob. He's giving it to Esau. And I, I'm sorry, Jacob is witnessing that. He's watching that. And so you know there's this jealousy. You know that there has to be this, this feeling within Jacob's heart of bitterness and anger. By the way, Isaac was very wealthy, as was his father Abraham. They had lots of riches and possessions, so he is a very wealthy man. So you know what? There's a lot to inherit. This is not just a small inheritance. This is going to be a big inheritance, and maybe Jacob has his eyes set on that. Apparently, Jacob wanted all of that so badly that he was willing to go to great lengths to get it for himself instead of trusting God to fulfill his word that the promise would continue through him. Jacob wants to take the matters into his own hands. Whereas Esau was careless in the short term, Jacob's sinful desires to attain his birthright made him deceptive in the long term. He was willing to manipulate others. He was willing to lie to get what he wanted. He was willing to deceive those he loved to get what he thought he needed, what he really wanted. 
It's worth noting, though, this birthright in and of itself is not a bad desire, right? I mean, it's not a bad thing to want the birthright necessarily. But if this became Jacob's ultimate pursuit, if, it, if it's what he made his life all about, getting that birthright, grasping the heel of his brother, grasping onto that birthright, if he ascribed too much value to it, then it would control him and it would master him. He would become a slave to that desire. And he would stop at nothing to get it. And where is that true in your life? Maybe there's something good in your life. We would all on the surface say, well, that's not a bad thing. You go for it. But the truth is only you know deep down in your heart that it has become an ultimate thing. And the truth is, it is mastering you. It is controlling you. Is there something good in your life that you've made your ultimate pursuit? You know, the way to find out the answer to that is by asking yourself, where am I acting like Jacob? I see Jacob's story. I see his, his problems. Now, where in my life am I kind of doing the same thing? Where am I being short and manipulative with the people I love? What am I lying about? And who am I lying to? Where am I intentionally trying to be deceptive? It could be your career. It's not a bad thing to want to advance in your career or make more money. But if that has become your ultimate thing, if that is the thing that you feel like you can't live without, it is controlling you and it will cause you to do things you never thought you would do. It could be a relationship. Relationships aren't bad in and of themselves, but if you are putting so much pressure on a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever to give you what only truly God can give you, to give you peace, to give you assurance, to give you a feeling of acceptance, you're going to squeeze the life out of them and it's going to wreck you. It could be your social status or your need to feel respected or whatever. Whatever it is, we must not overvalue these good gifts of life. The Bible calls this idolatry. When we take God's good gifts and we turn them into things they were never meant to be, things we can't live without. And when we do that, Serious problems come into our lives. That's how this family was wrecked. You see, because of this family's sinful desires, Isaac's, Rebecca's, Esau's, Jacob's, all four of them are guilty. There were serious consequences. This family was torn apart by their anger, their jealousy, and their deceit. And it makes you wonder, And this, this is the family of God? This is the family that God chose to be a blessing to the whole world. This, these people are the ones on the earth that are supposed to be representing the goodness of God and his holiness. But you know what else this story shows us? This family can't do it. And neither can we. No one can be. No one can be the true and perfect representation of God in this world until one day 
many years later, a descendant of Jacob would bring that promised blessing to the whole world. And he would be the perfect representation. In fact, he would be God himself. But he would be much different than his ancestor Jacob. Whereas Jacob selfishly and manipulatively sought to attain his firstborn blessing, you know what? Jesus Christ sacrificially and selflessly gave up his rights as the firstborn blessing and shares that blessing and that inheritance with his people. Whereas Jacob put on Esau's clothes and substituted himself for Esau in an unrighteous way, Jesus put on our sin on himself and becomes, he becomes our sin and became our righteous substitute, giving us his righteous robes to wear. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The Bible tells us that if we repent of our sin and trust Jesus to be our substitute before a holy God, if we turn away from valuing our own lives and ourselves and trying to save ourselves, and we turn to Christ as our greatest possession, our greatest treasure, our true Savior, we will gain an eternal, an eternal inheritance, an eternal relationship with God. We will become a part of a family that eternally can never be torn apart, can never be broken. And nobody can steal that away from us by any kind of deception. Maybe you're like Esau. And something just looks better. You are undervaluing the gift of grace you've been given. I want to ask you today to repent of that, to turn away from that. Whatever it is, you may think you are in such a hole you cannot get out. And you know what? That's kind of true. You can't dig yourself out. But the grace of God can pull you out. And so I beg you and plead to confess whatever it is. Whether you're like Esau and you are undervaluing, undervaluing your salvation, or you are like Jacob and you are overvaluing something else or both. Confess whatever has a grip on your heart and ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you of that unrighteousness. And he will. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have any questions about salvation or baptism, please come up and find me after the service. I would love to talk with you about these things and what this means. And for those of you here today who already have a relationship with Jesus, I want us to pray and I want us to ask the Lord right now to help each of us value the right things. We're going to value something. We're all going to worship something. 
but may we worship the one true treasure, the one true king, the firstborn, the son of God. And let's thank him for the inheritance he's given us. Let's thank him that he has adopted us into his family that can never be torn apart. So lay your bitterness aside, lay your jealousy down, put your anger down. Whatever is ruling your heart, it does not have to any longer because the grace of Jesus is stronger, amen? The grace of Jesus is stronger. So confess that to the Lord. Confess that to him right now. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you have done what Abraham could not do. You have done what Isaac could not do. You have done what Jacob failed to do. Lord, you have done what we failed to do. You, Jesus, you have been perfectly obedient to the will of the Father to the point, even to the point of death on a cross that you gave up your life. You gave up your inheritance. You gave up your privileges in heaven to come down to us, to save us, so that we could share in those blessings, so that we could have an eternal family, an eternal inheritance. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for loving us and saving us in that way. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's living as a slave to some other thing, whether it is a deep-rooted desire, a root of bitterness, whatever it may be. God, would you bring healing to our hearts? Would you bring restoration in whatever relationships have been broken? Would you bring reconciliation, Lord? May we not end up like Jacob or Esau. At least not in this part of the story, Lord. So Lord, we trust that you are writing our stories. May we be found faithful and obedient in every chapter. Lord, would you bless us and help us, forgive us of our sins. Let your Holy Spirit work deep, deep, in our heart. Thank you, Jesus, for your truth. May we carry it with us and be faithful witnesses in this world for you as we leave this place and anticipate the gathering again of your body, the family of God. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.